Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. For real, and if we hadn't already covered Plochi in a previous 201 episode, I was going to say that one, but then I saw our list, and I was like, oh shit, I need to find another form of repetition to talk about. <sighs> fun, 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 till daddy takes the T-bird away. Um, sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. It's been a week, man. Yeah. Uh-huh. I can tell. <laughs> sorry. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week, we're revisiting The Merchant of Venice. That was such a presentational, The Merchant of Venice. I know. I'm trying really hard to, like, psych myself into it. That's real. Um, so this is a 201 level episode and things are different this time around. Yeah, we will be operating on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play. So we won't do a synopsis. If you're a newbie to The Merchant of Venice or if you just need to refresh your memory, listen to episode 25 of our podcast, Merchant 101, featuring that amazing and handsome and talented Patrick Aaron mm-hmm. Harris. He is so handsome and amazing and talented. Yes. But also handsome. Yep, he sure is. Not that anybody can see that like through the podcast. No. But like you can tell from but his voice like, that yeah, he's just like good looking. know in your heart that he is a very handsome man and he's yeah. single. Yeah, fellas. I think so. <laughs> For the 201 level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. So this week, we are talking about Portia and embedded stage directions. That is right. Uh, But first, we like to return to a rhetorical device of the week. So in our 101 episodes, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and give you some examples from our flashcards. At the 201 level, though, we revisit a device that we've already drawn in a 101 and discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. So this week, I have chosen epinolepsis. Or mm. epanalepsis. Epanalepsis, it's trochaic, right? It's a trochaic word. I, it would have to be, I think. Sure. Okay. Yeah, epin- I mean, I say epanalepsis, so. Okay. Cool. Well, mm. epanalepsis, for those of you who don't remember, how dare you not remember, uh, <laughs> it is a repetition of the same word or clause after a short interval. More strictly, repetition at the end of a line, phrase, or clause in the same word or words that occurred at the beginning of that line or phrase or clause. So what I have found for us, and it's pretty darned obvious in The Merchant of Venice, uh, really adheres more to the first part of that definition of epinalepsis, which is repetition of a same word or clause after a short interval. Uh, Witness... Act three, scene three. I mean, really just look to the character of Shylock. He repeats himself and like particular phrases all over the fucking place. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I uh-huh. mean, he's just yep. 
I mean, I just turning to this page, I'm looking at my new Oxford today and just turning to this Jesus. page, I hit, you know, I just landed randomly on a page with Shylock on it, Act 3, Scene yeah. 1. Yeah. And Shylock says, I thank God. I thank God. Is it true? Is it true? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, should we just should we just read this whole thing? What whole thing? It's, the yeah, the three, three? Of three three. Yeah. Yeah. It's what it's twenty lines. That's not. Very yeah. Much. Totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, you want to be Shylock sure. or Antonio? Okay. Sure. Great. I shall be Good. Easy for me. Also, real quick, <laughs> yeah. since I am not looking at the New Oxford, what is Shylock's speech heading? It says Shylock the Jew. Interesting. All the way through Shylock the Jew. Ooh, and yeah. I'm a poet, and I didn't know it. Um, Arden <laughs> just has Jew. Oh God. Yeah, not great. Wow. What yeah. did the historical speech? What was the speech heading? Well, is that why? I'm sure glad you asked. I'm sure that it is why. But let us turn to that. <laughs> let page. us briefly birdwalk to the textual uh-huh. history you know, of Merchant you know of Venice. How we do. How we do. All Especially right. in so a 201. The note for Shylock the Jew. Uh-huh. The emphasis on Shylock's name as opposed to his dramatic function begins with Q3, which describes him as Shylock, the rich Jew and father of Jessica. Mm-hmm. Marlowe combines social type and individualized character in the Jew of Malta, where the name Barabbas resonates with New Testament overtones. In Merchant of Venice Q1 through 4 and Folio 1 through 4, the speech prefixes remain unstable, but Roe normalized the unstable speech prefixes Jew and Shy or Shaiul to Shylock. Oh, the Jew has an English name, period. <laughs> For the significance of variant speech prefixes, see these people. For the alleged connection between Marlowe's play, The Dr. Lopez Affair, and Merchant of Venice, see pages 20 to 21. Blah, blah, blah. All right. There is some etymological uncertainty regarding the Jew's name, since the English surname Shylock appears in a document of 1435 in the Battle Abbey Deeds and refers to Richard Shylock of Who, County Sussex. Significantly, after Shakespeare's play, the name is associated with a Jew and appears in a ballad entitled Caleb Shylock, his prophecy or the Jews prediction thought to have appeared in 1607, though it may have been of much earlier provenance. The spelling of Shylock appears in Q3 at signature B2 recto. This is not interesting for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to scan. The note sure. is so fucking long. Sure. Nope, it's just this It's just like here are a bunch of different ways that it's been done. As I understand it, the Arden texts take their speech prefixes from the earliest authoritative text of the play. Okay. For this, I don't I don't know if that is um, a quarto or folio. I'm not sure what their copy text is, but I I am. I feel like I remember that, that that's what they do. And that's why so like, there's so much weird shit with names in the Ardens. Yeah. Um, like Gabo, you remember Gabo? Oh yes. Lancelot Gabo, the unfunniest clown in the world. Yeah. How would you spell Gabo? G O B B O. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, the Arden spells it G I O B B E. Giobby. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, fun. That's yeah, fun. There's also the Sally problem. Sure, of course. Yes, but which we have talked f- about. Yeah, that's for another day. Anyway, uh, moving on. Right, we were three. Anyway, we're going to read some shit. Back to Act Three, Scene Three for a really uh-huh. good example uh-huh. of epinalepsis 
We will remember this, listeners. We will also be referring to this scene and returning to it when it's my turn to monologue about this play. Mm. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yes. So here's a preview. Here's a taste. Okay. I will be Shylock. Jess, you read for Antonio. Yep. Jailer, look to him. Tell me not of mercy. This is the fool that lent out money gratis. Jailer, look to him. Hear me yet, good Shylock. I'll have my bond. Speak not against my bond. I have sworn an oath, and I will have my bond. Thou callest me dog before thou hadst a cause, but since I am a dog, beware my fangs. The duke shall grant me justice. I do wonder, thou naughty jailer, that thou art so fond to come abroad with him at his request. I pray thee, hear me speak. I'll have my bond. I will not hear thee speak. I'll have my bond, and therefore speak no more. I'll not be made a soft and dull-eyed fool to shake the head, relent, and sigh, to yield to Christian intercessors. Follow not. I'll have no speaking. I will have my bond. Ta-da. Bond, 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 bond. I will have my bond. 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 I will have my bond. What will he have? He will have his bond. Clochy like whoa. Um, But really... Uh, the character of Shylock is a, a character study in the use of epinalepsis. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, you know, repetition of any kind, anytime you see it, is um, that means people don't repeat things by accident, right? It is, it is for a purpose. It's either to build rhythm or tempo or it's to draw attention to a particular thing being said. So why might someone like Shylock, who is a marginalized person in his society and in his time, feel like he needs to repeat himself very specifically over and over and over again? I just think it's, I'm just going to put that question out there into the world uh, and let the next actor who takes this on think about that. You know, I can't know the original reason for why it's happening, but it's certainly there for you to play with now. So have fun with that. There that is. So, revisited device of the week, epinalepsis. You're welcome. Moving on to Jess's bag of tricks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I'm talking about Portia, because she sucks. Sure, yeah. We A have lot. established that. She did She did make it sort of far on our dick bracket. Yeah, she did. She made it into the second or third round. Yeah. Yeah, because she's yeah. a dick. Because she's a dick. Um, which is not a new observation. I'm not, this is not groundbreaking scholarship. Um, but <laughs> I'm fine with that. I don't think it has to be groundbreaking scholarship. That, you know, whatevs. I hate Portia and I want to talk about it. So okay. guess what? It's my podcast and I can do what I want. Right on. Um, I support great. this. Thank you. So <laughs> I want to start us out in one, two, act okay. one, scene two, which is the first scene that Portia appears in. Oh, why, um, yes. Yeah, which you're going to talk about later. I shall indeed. We're yeah. so in sync this I week. Know, it's like we planned it, but we didn't. Weird. Um, Get out of my brain, Hamlet. I shan't. I like it here. <laughs> so this is the scene in which... Um, Narissa is sort of pointing out all of Portia's suitors yes. and saying like, hey, what do you think about these dudes, Portia? And Portia's yes. like, they all suck, um, which fair, like I'm not I'm not knocking her for not liking any of these guys. I think that's fine, um, but she doesn't have to be so shitty about it. Word. So. Uh, first there is the Neapolitan prince and Portia says about him, um, well, she taught, she compares him 
to a horse a little bit and talks about how much he likes horses. Mm -hmm. And then she says, I am much afeard my lady, his mother, played false with a smith. Don't! Which, like, is that necessary, Portia? Like, you just, you don't like this guy because he's obsessed with horses. So we're going to say that his mother was unfaithful? Cool. Portia's got jokes. Yeah. Um, Then there's the County Palatine. Mm, Yes. Who's German, question mark? That's where Palatine is, right? Sure. No idea. The footnote doesn't say. Whatever. We're going to assume he's German. Um, Anyway, she's like, uh, yeah, he also sucks because he looks sad all the time. Um, And then she says, I had rather be married to a death's head with a bone in his mouth than to either of these two Mm, suitors so far. So I'd rather marry a skull than either of these guys, which like, cool girl. It's kind of melodramatic. Yes. Um, So then there's the French Lord, Monsieur Le Bon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and Portia says, God made him and therefore let him pass for a man. In truth, I know it is a sin to be a mocker. I know that I'm I'm being a shit bag, but I I can't stop myself because this guy sucks. Yeah. If I should marry him, I should marry 20 husbands. If he would despise me, I would forgive him. For if he loved me to madness, I shall never requite him. Uh, Portia. Then there's Falconbridge, the Englishman. Mm-hmm. She says he hath neither Latin, French, nor Italian, so I can't understand him because, right, she's in Italy. Yes. Yeah. I was like, where's Venice? Yep. <laughs> Italy. Italy. Uh-huh. She says he is a proper man's picture, but alas, who can converse with a dumb show? How oddly he is suited. I think he bought his doublet in Italy, his round hose in France, his bonnet in Germany, and his behavior everywhere. And then there's, oh, here's the German, the young German, the Duke of Saxony's nephew. She says, you know, how do you like him? She says, very vilely in the morning when he is sober and most vilely in the afternoon when he is drunk. When he is best, he is little worse than a man. And when he is worst, he is little better than a beast. Okay, but it's not her fault that that guy's a drunk. True. I mean, that one of all of them might actually be justified if the dude yeah, is a lush and showing his ass fair. at this at this suitor competition. I suppose that's fair. Um, I still think there are nicer ways to say it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, She's roasting dudes right now, so she's on a roll. For real, for real. And then she ends all of this by saying, there is not one among them, but I dote on his very absence, and I pray God grant them a fair departure. Mm -hmm. Portia, why you gotta be that way? All right, so now I'm going to skip forward to Act 2, Scene 7. Okay. Act 2, Scene 7, so brief and you miss it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. This is uh, the Prince of Morocco. Oh, God, yes. Yep, the Prince of Morocco. This bitch. This is his scene choosing the caskets. Um, He chooses the wrong casket, spoiler alert. And at the very, very end, the last two lines of the... um, scene episode (laughs) the last two lines of the episode uh she says a gentle riddance draw the curtains go let all of his complexion choose me so racist bitch that's pretty much all i have to say about that she's not nice about the other guy either um she is not the prince of whoever you know the other guy 
Prince of Aragon. Yeah, Aragon, that's what it is. Ah, uh, yes, the yeah. Spanish guy. Yes, she's not nice about him either, but is a yeah. little nicer. I didn't highlight sure. anything in that scene. Anyway, okay, so now we're going to 4-1, which is the trial okay. scene. Fun. Okay. Um, if you want to follow along, oops, you can see my line notes there. We're going to yes. start with about 180. Um, so this is the quality of mercy is not strained speech. And my yes. note here is the quality of her mercy definitely fucking is strained, you bitch. Okay, so I'm just going to walk you through this. So she says, the quality of mercy <laughs> is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Just, just remember that. She's preaching yep. mercy. Mercy, 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 mercy. She a hypocrite. Real big. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, and then at the... <laughs> I'm so terrified and turned on by you at the same time. <laughs> right now. That is, uh, frankly, the reaction I hope to inspire in everyone always. Excellent. <laughs> so, I'm so scared. It's my exact okay. aesthetic is I want you to You're be horny and afraid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, keep going. Yeah, so at the end of that speech, she says, we do pray for mercy and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Hmm. S- if you're Christian. Yeah. But mercy is not just a Christian ideal. No, but I'm saying for her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, her thesis statement is like, hey, be merciful no matter the circumstances. Right. Right. Okay. So then I'm skipping forward about 100 lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So she's she's decided to allow the taking of the pound of flesh. Right. Uh-huh. This is This is about to happen. Um, Shylock yeah. says, most learned judge, a sentence, come, prepare. Okay. And then Portia says, tarry a little. There is something else. This bond doth give thee here no jot of blood. The words expressly are a pound of flesh. Take then thy bond, take thou the pound of flesh. But in thy cutting of it, if thou dost shed one drop of Christian blood, thy lands and goods are by the laws of Venice confiscate unto the state of Venice. So she's outsmarting Uh him here, right? This is the outsmarting. Ha ha ha. How can you take the flesh without the blood? If you do it, you are going to have to give up everything. Uh So he's like, you know, mad, but realizes he's been beaten in the next 20 lines. Shylock is. um, And he sort of accepts his fate and then leaves. He's like, all right, I'll stay no longer. Peace. And then she says, Terry Jew, the law hath yet another hold on you. It is enacted in the laws of Venice if it be proved against an alien that by direct or indirect attempts he seek the life of any citizen, the party against the which he doth contrive shall seize one half his goods, etc., etc. So there's mm-hmm. this sort of, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't, I'm not going to call it an archaic law, but there's this other law, right, that says, you done fucked up, son, so we can take all your shit. Right. Which I believe, when compared with um, her quality of mercy and let's be merciful, 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 is some bullshit. I think she's a hypocrite. I think it's disproportionate punishment and that she backs this up and prosecutes it. um, And then that they also force him to convert. Like, that's just not okay. It's not okay. Like, Take his goods, take his lands, takes his money, 
I guess, which again, I don't think is okay. I don't think that's okay at all. And then force him to convert. So he has lost everything. He has no home. He has no money. He has no daughter. He has no community. He is completely cast out and he's already a stranger in a strange land. Portia sucks. Postscript. The bullshit thing that she pulls with the ring and Bassanio. I see you searching uh-huh. for it, right? Where she's like, oh, she's yes, still cross-dressed. Pre- yeah. And then she she sort of forces Bassanio to yield his wedding ring because that is the only right. um, payment that her lawyer persona will take. And then she comes home right. to Bassanio and is like, bitch, where my ring at? Like, can you not? Like, why are you yeah. so terrible? Why? She likes to play games. Yeah, she, she does. She likes to play games. It's, you know, it, uh, I used to feel bad for Portia because I was like, damn, that's kind of fucked up what her dad did to her, yeah. like upon his death, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, leaving, leaving this weird game for all of her future suitors that have to play. But I don't think the apple falls all that far from the tree. Nope. She learned a great deal about playing some fucking head games on people, clearly. Also, because that's what she does. I just want to point out a plot hole. (laughs) Like, I understand the casket issue is for, like, drama. Um, But (laughs) we never see anyone in the play anywhere who is above her, except for maybe the Duke, but he doesn't govern her at Belmont. So, like, who's enforcing this? Her dad's dead. Yeah. Just her honor, I guess. Just her integrity. Which I think she has none, so she can fuck all the way off forever. It's questionable. So anyway, them's my thoughts on Portia. Um, She sucks. (laughs) It's my thesis statement. So why don't you tell us about some embedded stage directions or some shit? Yeah. So so I, I sort of generally said embedded stage directions, but really because, and that's only because... It's nothing like explicit in the text. It's all like an invitation, perhaps, from the text to do certain things at certain times. So I want to go back to Act 1, Scene 2. And Jess, I'm going to need your help reading with this. Okay. So Act 1, Scene 2. Oh, you want to know another weird textual thing? Mm -hmm. I just noticed just now that in my new Oxford... On the left-hand side, the header says the Merchant of Venice. Mm -hmm. And on the right-hand side, the header says the Jew of Venice. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. It's just uh, something I just noticed just now. Yeah. um, So so here's here's a a note in the Arden that addresses that. Oh, really? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. To do, to do, to do. So the title follows the folio title, The Merchant of Venice. Um, in 1701, George Granville published an adaptation of the play entitled The Jew of Venice, a comedy. Uh-huh. The Oxford conflates Quarto and Granville to produce the title The Comical History of the Merchant of Venice, or otherwise called The Jew of Venice. Oh, yeah. that makes more sense. Yep. So I imagine that um, the new Oxford carried that over. Sure, sure. All right. I think that's a weird well, choice to pull in someone's adaptation for a title but yeah whatevs yeah oh right you needed me to read odd thing okay yes i do so i need you i need you to read narissa for me cool where we start um so uh we're gonna start around line in my edition it's 25 but what warmth is there in your affection 
with Nerissa? Aha, there it is. <laughs> okay. It's like 32. It's like, oh my god, the line should be, oh, okay. Yeah. Different editions. Yep. That's just how it works. Yep. Um, so before we jump into the reading of this, I uh, just want to suggest that there's an invitation here to to have a little bit of fun with your audience, right? As Jess mentioned, these suitors, we never see them ever. They never appear unless you want them to, unless you're like blessed with a huge cast and you want to Ugh, show them. Why would you do that though? <laughs> exactly. Why would you do that when you could have so much fun roasting people in your audience? Yep. And and really, you know, this scene doesn't really serve a huge purpose except except for Portia and Narissa to have some laughs yep. um, at these guys' expense. So why not, you know, cast people in your audience? I would argue that it's an invitation to to point at people in your audience and make them the County Palatine and the Falcon Bridge and you know the Neapolitan Prince or whatever. So just imagine, if you will, while we're reading this, um, and we're just going to do a little bit of it, that every time Narissa points out a different person, she is picking out somebody in the audience who maybe matches the description given to have a little bit of fun with them. Right. And remember, this is act one, scene two. So whichever actors came out to begin with have already had a good chance to like scope out the house and see if there's like a frowny guy you know sitting around or you know if there's somebody who's dressed fancy like a dandy you could you so they've gotten a chance to scope out the people and now you get to have a little bit of fun with them so nerissa mm -hmm, if you would mm -hmm. but take it away but what warmth is there in your affection towards any of these princely suitors that are already come I pray thee, overname them, and as thou namest them, I will describe them, and, according to my description, level at my affection. First, there is the Neapolitan prince. Okay. Side note, already, Arden, the art, sorry, not the Arden, the New Oxford edition is giving me a note already in my favor. It says, Portia may mimic the physical or vocal mannerisms of the men she describes. Perhaps in the audience. Okay, so here's her line, sorry. I... That's a colt indeed, for he doth nothing but talk of his horse, and he makes it a great appropriation to his own good parts that he can shoe him himself. I am much afeard my lady his mother played false with a smith. Then there is the county palatine. He doth nothing but frown, and who should say, and you will not have me choose, he hears merry tales and smiles not. I fear he will prove the weeping philosopher when he grows old, being so full of unmannerly sadness in his youth. I had rather be married to a death's head with a bone in his mouth than to either of these. God defend me from these two. How say you by the French lord, Monsieur Le Bon? God made him, and therefore let him pass for a man. In truth, I know it is a sin to be a mocker, but he? Why, he hath a horse better than the Neapolitans, a better bad habit of frowning than the county palatine. He is every man and no man. If a throstle sing, he falls straight a-capering. He will fence with his own shadow. If I should marry him, I should marry twenty husbands. If he would despise me, I would forgive him. For if he love me to madness, I shall never requite him. What say you then to Falconbridge, the young baron of England? You know I say nothing to him, for he understands not me, nor I him. He hath neither Latin, French, nor Italian, and you will come into the court and swear that I have a poor pennyworth in the English. He is a proper man's picture. But, alas, who can converse with a dumb show? How oddly he is suited. I think he bought his doublet in Italy, his round hose in France, his bonnet in Germany, and his behavior everywhere. And we're going to stop there. So... 
Yeah, and this goes on. This is a very short scene. It goes on for about a hundred lines. That's a, that's all it is, and it serves essentially no purpose except to wake up your audience to the fact that they could be a target. <laughs> that is my thesis for that. So good. Take that and have fun with it, folks. It is meant to be funny. Parts of this play, at least, are meant to be funny. And I know Portia's terrible, but this is a really fun scene. <laughs> so have fun with that. Next, I want to look at, we're going to go back to Act 3, Scene 3, because I said we would, and I come cool. through on my promises. And I know you do. Tell you <laughs> um, I want to look at some repeated cues in that scene and how they might possibly be used as as staging choices or or to inform the actors on stage. Um, we use this scene a lot, actually, when we do our cue scripts workshop uh, to make the point that, you know, Shakespeare didn't have a lot of time. Uh, Shakespeare's actors did not have a lot of time in rehearsing these scenes because um, they were churning out new plays a couple times a week. So... Can you, real quick, explain what a cue script is? I shall, yes. So a cue script is a long strip of usually vellum uh, rolled into a scroll that has just the part of the one actor uh, receiving it. So, for example, Hamlet would have a rather large role. That's the etymology of that word, by the way, uh, in terms of acting, role and role. But Hamlet would have, in his lines, he would just have his entrances and exits and a few words that comes in the speech before his and then his speeches and so on and so forth. So you just get a few words of your cue and then you get your speaking part and that is it. You don't get a whole lot else from that. Um, you certainly don't get the full length of the play. Uh, ain't nobody got time to hand copy a bunch of co like a dozen copies of the manuscript, the full manuscript for some actors when what you could do is just make a scroll with just their part on it. Uh, so when they showed up to rehearsal, the actor had no idea who was going to say their cue, uh, how long they'd be talking before that cue was said, um, or even if they were being spoken to, <laughs> right? They just know that they're on stage and those are the words that they need to listen for before they start talking. So there's a lot of um, active listening that has to happen when you just isolate the cue scripts for each actor. Uh, so imagine that the actors who were working with uh, this cue script for The Merchant of Venice, um, if you're playing Antonio or Solanio opposite Shylock in Act 3, Scene 3, you're being given a bunch of repeated cues. So, for example, at the very top of the scene, Shylock says, Jailer, look to him. And those words, or, or even just look to him, are the cue for Antonio to say, hear me yet, Shylock, at the very beginning of that scene. Now, mm -hmm. Shylock says that twice. So. We, are we going to do it? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yes. Um, Jess, what I'd like you to do is when you hear your cue, try, uh -huh. try to start talking. I got you, girl. Okay. Jailer, look to him. Hear Tell me, me not of mercy. This is the fool that lent out money gratis. Jailer, look to him. Hear me yet, good Shylock. Okay, so we're going to pause there. So what's cool about that is that I say, Jailer, look to him, and then my very next line, while you heard Jess as Antonio is trying to interrupt me, my next line is, tell me not of mercy. So that kind of implies that 
Shiloh, like almost like uh, like our author anticipated that that the actor would pick up that cue and try to interrupt this this other actor. Maybe um, it's certainly useful when when you're trying to build tension in a scene that will maybe you know there's like maybe three people in it total. Um, this scene wouldn't have seen a lot of rehearsal before performance. So again, I can't you know I can't state for sure Shakespeare's intent, but there's definitely some. Some helpful cues in there if you're trying to build tension, build uh, anticipation in an actor to get them to play that scene the way you want them to. Uh, So we're going to move on. We will keep going. I just want to jump down like five lines to Antonio and then Jess, of course, keep trying to cut me off also as Solanio. Yep. Got you. Go ahead, Antonio. Hear me yet, good Shylock. Oh, no, sorry. I was going to skip down to oh. uh, I pray thee hear me speak. The, the, okay. Uh, I yeah. pray thee hear me speak. I'll have my bond. It is. I will not imp- hear thee speak. I'll have my bond and therefore most- speak no more. I'll not be made a soft and dull-eyed fool to shake the head and relent and sigh and yield to Christian intercessors. Follow not. I'll have no speaking. I will have my bond. It is the most impenetrable cur that ever kept with men. Yeah. So that one, I just got to say, makes a little bit less sense to me. Really? Because I, yeah, because I feel like Solanio, like it doesn't, it doesn't seem like an interruption. Like that line, it is the most impenetrable cur that ever kept with men. He's like, he's not trying to say it to Shylock. So to, to say it to Antonio and to try to interrupt, to, continually interrupt Shylock to say it to Antonio or whoever else. I I mean, it's a really good example, but it doesn't feel like an interruption. It's, I think it's a, it's a character choice. One, because he uses the word impenetrable, right? Meaning sure. that he can't get through Shylock. Sure. Also, Solanio is kind of a dick and he would be the kind of guy who interrupted somebody just to make a snide remark. Yeah, that's um, fair. So so yeah, I see what I see what you're saying. And again, these are these are just options. You don't have yeah, yeah. to take me up on it. Um, but I think, I <laughs> but I think also if you put this in the context of um, of an early modern playing company, right? Antonio, aka the Merchant of Venice, um, and Shylock would have been played by more senior members of the company, like Burbage uh, and mm-hmm. guys of that rank. Whereas somebody like Solanio would have been played probably by a journeyman or a less or a more junior member of the company. Sure, sure. Right? So when you think about it, like, it could be, maybe, that these repeated cues are thrown in here to get the journeyman to interrupt and therefore create that frustration in him to get him to act better. Sure, sure. (laughs) And just rely on the fact that the kid is going to pick up his cues or get fired. Or at least that's how I frame it when I teach the workshop on it. Um, So it's a really great example, I think, of a repeated cue. Uh, and repeated cues are really fun to look for once you know that you're looking for them and maybe, you know, how you can use them. Um, so if this play isn't fun for you for any other reasons, like it isn't for me, I I, I, I just, I don't find this play particularly entertaining. No. I, uh, I don't like sitting through it. No. <laughs> uh, but I really like textually um, playing with performance choices when you think about them in a early modern context the way Shakespeare had to. It is useful and fun for that. So that is that is my two cents. You're welcome. Very good, very good. Shall yeah. we move on? Indeed law. All right. 
Uh, so it's how to grad school time because it's a 201 episode. Ooh, yeah. Um, and we're going to talk about conferences. Yes. Because it's conference season. It is. Uh, and in fact, when this episode drops, we'll be heading to SAA. Is that right? Uh, yeah. 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 It is. In just like a few days after that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, right. So this, it's, this is a big topic. Yes. This is a big, 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 big topic. Um, and I think we've talked a little bit about conferences before. Um, like sure. What they are, why you should go to them, how you get to go to them, et cetera. Yeah. Um, which are also topics I'd like to revisit in future episodes. But today I just want to talk about conference etiquette. Mm. Um, cause I have seen, I've seen some shit to see what I have seen <laughs> in, in my day. I've seen a yeah. lot of bad behavior at conferences. Well, hit me with it because I am a relative novice to conferences. I really, you know, I've only been to, in terms of academic Shakespeare or literature or theater conferences, I've only been to the Blackfriars conference sure. and like when I was a teacher, I went to a few English teacher conferences, but that's like a whole different ball game. Like that's teachers on sure. vacation and like wearing flip flops <laughs> and sharing materials and stuff. It's like not the same environment as an sure. academic conference. Sure. So the, the first thing I want to highlight is just kind of like common sense shit. Like if you're in a panel presentation, um, which I is a, a very standard thing for academic conferences. Turn your phone to silent. No shit. Don't talk while the presenters presenters while the <laughs> presenters are talking. Um, don't interrupt them. Uh, don't answer a phone call while a presentation is happening. Uh, these are all things I've seen, by the way. Mm hmm. Um, same just like be a good decent human essentially be the um, audience you would like to have yeah uh, and then for for just sort of general um, whether you're presenting or listening um, if you are going to ask a question in the Q&A mm, if yeah. there's a microphone provided use it without exception I don't care if you are Kenneth Branagh and you can project use the goddamn mic that's an accessibility issue use it okay it is no fun to be whatever and not be able to hear because this asshole refuses to use the mic use the mic if you are presenting and you have a slideshow think about if there are accessibility issues with that if you need to provide you know a printout transcription for people with vision issues or hard of hearing people. Um, if you, you know, if you want to do a, a transcription of your talk, these sort of accessibility issues are getting a lot more common um, and conferences are becoming much more willing to accommodate. Just like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't know, think <laughs> before you do and say things um, and don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you, if you, you know, sit through a, a really interesting panel or even a very uninteresting panel and you have questions, have an actual question. Do not be that this is a more of a comment than a question asshole. Everybody <laughs> hates that asshole. That's, there's a reason we joke about that asshole. Don't be that asshole. And don't 
oh my god don't be like you should really read my work on this topic because i think it'll be really helpful for you let me tell you about my research don't be that guy that's not a good or if you are going to be that guy reserve it for a post uh presentation private discussion yeah. yeah And find be the that person, guy privately. <laughs> yeah, find the person after the panel, find the person at the bar, yeah. find the person in the lobby. Don't subject us all to that. That's terrible. Or send them an email. Right, yeah. At the yeah. conferences I go to, people's affiliations are listed um, in the program, and they're real easy to find. You Google, and their email address will come up. Yeah. And then you send them a kind, gentle cordial convivial email that says hey i listened to your fascinating talk on whatever the thing at whatever the conference and i was really interested because of these reasons and i'd like to share with you some thoughts of these things yeah thanks for your time respectfully whoever you know that's a great template (laughs) yeah Um, thanks for that you're welcome (laughs) i'm here to help I it all it seems like common sense. The accessibility stuff is less common sense for people who are completely able. Right. Those are things that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about in our everyday lives because we don't have to. But maybe we should be welcoming, be ready to help. Be a good audience member. Um, Lots of conferences now have social media guidelines. Right. And will prohibit. Um, live tweeting or will prohibit live tweeting and tagging the person without their express permission. Do do the research before you do the tweeting, I suppose. Figure out um, if if a person is okay being tagged in tweets, if, if someone's okay with you live tweeting their talk. Um, it's so hard to police. It's so, so hard to police. But remember that in 280 characters, you you cannot really accurately represent what someone is saying um and so it's perhaps better to i don't know err on the side of summarizing and then following up with like this is what i heard and is not an accurate representation of the talk that kind of thing Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah yeah sort of a disclaimer yeah. Um, yeah. And with Twitter now where you can do a whole thread before you post it, I guess, like where you can link a bunch of tweets and mm-hmm. then hit send on the whole thing at one time. Um, that I think is a super, super useful tool for people who want to live tweet talks yeah. because you just you start with the title of the talk and the person and then be like, here's a thread <laughs> and then you thread it and then you send the whole thing at the end. So, yeah, you know, um, I will be live tweeting a lot of SAA because that's what I do when I go to conferences. So keep an eye out for that. But I, I try to do it consciously and conditionally and make it clear that this is my understanding and perspective of the event and not mm-hmm. direct quotes. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I find I find now that the the academics who tweet and the academics who are on Twitter are like super into it and they get it. Um, it is the people who refuse to engage with that kind of media that get really bent out of shape about it. And it's like, you're not even on Twitter. So maybe take a chill pill, but (laughs) I get it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's nothing worse than being misrepresented in print. So yeah. Cause print is forever. 
Yeah. And the internet, and the internet is forever. Is forever. Yeah. Forever. Um, so to sum up, don't be a dick and be kind to others and make space for people who are differently abled than you are. Yes. So don't be like Portia. Is yeah, what you're don't saying. be like Portia. <laughs> Certainly do not be like Portia. Yeah. Or just Shall a general gossip? dick. Yeah. Let's gossip. Uh, in our 201 episodes, we do try to keep it play centric. Um, sadly, or maybe not sadly, depending on how you <laughs> feel about the Merchant of Venice, there are very few Merchant of Venice uh, productions happening at like regional theaters near you. So to start with, I mean, there's one uh, adaptation of it in the play on festival of 39 readings from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's translation project um, by the classic stage company. They're doing the merchant one and that's happening on June 9th of 2019 in New York. York. Oh yes. In New York. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Not in Oregon. That's not happening in Oregon. No, it will happen in Oregon later, Later. but not now. This is just a reading. Yeah. Um, Shakespeare at Winedale in Austin is doing it um, soon. Oh, yeah. June 20th. Sounds like a weekend mm. performance. Yes. Uh, also in Texas, there's Shakespeare Dallas in Dallas, Texas. Uh, oh, it says summer 2020. Well, why the fuck yeah. is it on here for 2019? Well, okay, know, never maybe. mind. <laughs> Dallas is canceled. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the RSC is doing it oh, yeah. in um, September. Uh, it opens September 30th and runs to October 5th. Yeah. Which and is not a long run. That's interesting. That's a really short run. How interesting. Uh, there's also an adaptation of The Merchant of Venice in the UK called Shylock, written and directed by Gareth Armstrong. Uh, seems like a, it says performer is Rodri Miles. So I think it's a one man show at Theatre Brecken, the Brecken Theatre. It's clearly Welsh. Yeah, it's got to be Welsh. On the 18th of May. <laughs> well, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, with dudes like Gareth and Rodri and yeah. Theodore Brickenhagenhagener. I'm sorry, Welsh people. I'm so sorry. I can't speak your silly language. Can't do it. But it's happening in Brecken, <laughs> wherever the hell that is. Uh, May 18th. <laughs> On May 18th. Also, I'm sorry. I'm having a meltdown part. about the Welsh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, that too. Great. And that's it. That is all. That's cool. all we have. Um, so we say a lot of things on this podcast. Yep. And sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. Yep. So it only seems right to issue corrections as necessary. So I'm going all the way back to our first episode of this season, Comedy of Errors. Oh. Um, you remember I was talking about the portrait of the lady twins who the had twins. the baby twins. Yeah. Yeah, and the portrait is titled The Cholmondeli Ladies. Yes. <laughs> I have recently learned that that is pronounced Chumley. Damn it. Because the English. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing to us? Yeah, it's not Cholmondeli, it's Chumley. Chumley. Oh, Lord. So, my apologies to everyone out there in the world. <laughs> who heard me struggle to say that and sorry knew England that I was saying it wrong um, but that oh hi Becky <gasps> Becky hi. you want to come podcast with us you're so cute I like your little face oh oh I see you brought the hair tie sorry oh is that her little squeak yeah I love it so much I love her she's perfect 
it's playtime though apparently so um anyway so that is the correction and becky that's becky also uh so thank you so much for listening we Mm -hmm. hope that you leave this podcast more informed than when you started yeah tune in next week for that 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 sequel to henry 6 101 don't know i don't have words for it it's just to henry 6 we'll be doing it can't throw it if you don't drop it. Oh, Becky. Yeah, she wants to play. Anyway, uh, wham let out. Yeah, wham let out, y'all. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes. Burning up my rubber going 9 to 5. I don't get to where I'm going. I think I might die. I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife. I got six six packs in a pink Cadillac, ten thousand dollars in a sack in the bag. Cold thirty five, I don't aim to use facts. I got no bullets, just a will to whack. If you, if you would, I, let's, yeah. Suddenly we've turned it into the Patrick Harris <laughs> dating show. I just want him to find love because I love him so much. <laughs> Don't we all? Anyway. Any hoozle. Uh, now that we're done so- pimping out our friend. <laughs>